0: Well, I do count it an absolute privilege to uh, be here with you. We continue to pray for you over at Emmanuel. We have an elders meeting tomorrow night. And uh, as is usually the case, uh, there's something, some update that is given us uh, on behalf of Cornerstone. And uh, we just can't be any more thrilled with what the Lord is doing here. And I know that... um, uh, you must think very highly of me because you asked me to come and speak on anger. <laughs> Made me wonder what exactly Jonathan and Andy and the CPMT and Anthony uh, think of me. So, uh, uh, but thank you, because I think you're preaching next week, right, Anthony? And you, and you didn't want to touch this one. So I really thank you for that. It uh, meant a lot to me. So uh, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me pray for us before we get going. Father, thank you. For this opportunity uh, to come and look at your word, and I pray that as we do so, uh, your word would go forth. Anything that I had in mind to say that I shouldn't say, I pray you would remove it from my mind. And uh, anything that I wasn't planning on saying that I should say, please bring it to mind. Uh, But whatever I say, may it be an accurate reflection of your word. For it alone has power, the power to change, the power to convict, the power to give us eternal life. And we thank you for that power in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, certainly there is an event going on right now. And some of you may be angry that you're missing it. But I'm going to switch sports. And if you follow baseball at all, uh, then you know of a uh, second baseman named Robinson Cano. He was an all-star, is an all-star second baseman. He left the New York Yankees. At the end of the 2013 season to take a 10-year, $240 million contract with the Seattle Mariners. Now, Cano was set to return to play the Yankees at Yankee Stadium for the first time as a Mariner in April of 2014. And everyone knew, just like when Jacoby Ellsbury left the Red Sox, that he would be booed incessantly by the Yankees when he returned. And so before the game, he made an appearance on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Make sure that that worked. It did. Thank you. This is working. What they did is they took a cardboard cutout and put it on the streets of New York of Robinson Cano. And they encouraged people to let their feelings be known. And so people would go up to the cardboard cutout and they would practice booing in front of it so that they could be ready to give him a true Bronx cheer when he showed up at the game. But what the fans didn't realize is that behind the cardboard cutout stood the real Robinson Cano, waiting to surprise the fans, and so the reactions of the fans on the street were quite telling. When they thought they were booing a cutout, they were absolutely merciless. They would boo, and they would shake their fists at him, telling Cano, you aren't welcome here. Go back home to Seattle. And then he comes out from behind the cutout, and in mid-sentence, they completely change their demeanor. Hey, they begin smiling. They run up, and they shake his hand. Welcome, one guy gave him a hug. One guy went from saying, you suck, Mid-sentence, hey, welcome back to New York, man, good to see you. How often are we willing to speak poorly of someone behind their back or when they're not there, when there are seemingly no repercussions, but then act much differently when we are with them face to face? But of course, the people of New York act that way because they're from New York, right? (laughs) I mean... We, we would never do that. I, I might. I'm, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and that's all we ever do is boo people. But you in Boston, you would never boo anybody, right? Jacoby Ellsbury, I already mentioned him. How'd you feel about that? How many of you right now see the Chiefs as your number one enemy, at least for tonight? Especially since they're winning 21-3 to and Brady's been knocked out of the game. No, he hasn't. Not at all. Andy's not here, right? Andy, I, I don't know the score. I'm not going to say the score, okay? I don't know. By the way, Andy told me, if any, and this is true, if anybody actually shouts out the score or lets him know, because he's DVRing this thing, then you will see a sermon illustration demonstrated right there by the way he reacts. So please keep it quiet if you know it. But what about, all kidding aside, something more intensely personal? When's the last time you gossiped about someone? When's the last time you had a fight with someone or had malice in your heart towards someone? And to make matters worse, you weren't even bothered about the fight. You just kind of saw it as normal. <laughs> Happens to all married couples. What's the big deal? Ah, my boss is a jerk anyway. You know, my colleague is utterly clueless. Nice haircut. I can't believe that she acts like that. I can't believe that she would wear that in public. You know, my teacher is an absolute idiot. Did I touch everybody there? I managed to bug you? I'm not trying to bug you, but I'm trying to relate to you. Or honestly speak from my own heart. Because I've thought these types of things. Every single one of them and uh, a lot more. My guess is I'm not alone, but if I am alone, then indulge me for a few moments while I spend some time in this text and let it preach to myself. But if you're with me, and if you have your Bibles, then I invite you to turn back to Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Again, I think there are some Bibles on the back table there. If you want to stand up and grab one, feel free to do it. I've been asked to continue in the sermon series you've been going through, meeting Jesus in Matthew Examining what Jesus taught, and as Andy prayed earlier, we come to a difficult teaching and a text that certainly bugs all of us as it probes and it teaches that sinning in anger warrants a punishment no less than hell itself. But being angry at our sin is a good sign of the very power of heaven moving in you. I'll say it again even as you can kind of read it quietly behind me. Sinning in anger warrants a punishment no less than hell itself. But being angry at our sin is a good sign that the very power of heaven is moving in you. And so it's time to be bugged a little bit. Or convicted, hopefully. Sinning in anger warrants a punishment no less than hell itself. We see this in verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I'm sure you've seen by now in this series, just as Andy prayed, there is, you have heard it said, but I say. There's a lot of that going on. And note the wording, that's exactly it. You have heard that it was said. By whom? By whom? From whom did they hear this? Moses? Did they hear this in the law? No. Because Christ didn't use the words, you have read, or it is written, which is how he usually leads into a quotation from the Old Testament. That's not what he says. You have heard that it was said from the Pharisees, from their traditions from their extra laws, from their specific interpretations. Now, in this particular case, they were referring to the sixth commandment of the ten commandments. And it's a pretty simple one, you shall not murder. And there's nothing wrong with their base interpretation of that commandment. At least on paper. But you see, the thing is, the Pharisees viewed that commandment as applying to external righteousness only. External behavior only. In other words, don't literally murder someone. Meaning, implying, you can hate their guts. Just don't take the actual step of offing them. As long as you don't act externally, you're good in the sight of God. Because, you see, the Pharisees were concerned with external righteousness. That was their problem in the end. And you and I, we know that problem today as legalism or moralism. That is, set up a certain set of rules... Whether they are rules from the Bible or rules set by a culture or by a church or whatever it is. And so long, and this is what uh, Christian legalism would teach, so long as you act a certain way, look a certain way, behave in a certain manner, you will be accepted by God, by that particular church, by that group setting the rules in place, etc. Moralism. Clean up your act and God will like you. Avoid certain behaviors, and God will be pleased with you. There's an old uh, joke going after old fundamentalism and legalism saying uh, the three rules of fundamentalism are don't smoke, don't chew tobacco, and don't go with girls who do. And basically, that's what legalism is. Don't, 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 don't. Or do, 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 do. Behave. And legalism is a trap for all of us. Because we are all rule-driven. We are wired for law by nature. And there's nothing wrong with laws and rules. God created them. God sets them in motion. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.17, just a few verses before, that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to abolish them. So there's nothing wrong with the law or laws. But here's where Christ's words contrast with the Pharisees. He came not to abolish but to fulfill. That is to fulfill the true meaning and give the true interpretation of the law. You see, he's the author of the law. Moses wasn't the author of the law. Moses was simply the conduit, the messenger. Christ is the author of the law. And as such, I think it's a safe bet to say that he understood its true meaning. And its true interpretation. And he knew that the law was never meant to lead to mere external righteousness. Remember, this is the Jesus who would also call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Because they were interested in looking good. Now their heart may have been in the right place to begin with. I think they were zealous for God. But along the way they formulated an extra 600 plus laws added to the law of Moses that you had to adhere to. All aimed at external righteousness. But the law is not going for external righteousness, but it is going for character, internal righteousness. It was always meant to reflect the character of God And thus it is meant to shape our character too. So that we reflect the character of God. And as such, Jesus, in talking to these Pharisees, he gets to the heart of the matter by going to the spiritual intent of the law. And as he does so, he uses the law, as one pastor puts it, as a diagnostic tool to probe our heart, to probe our character. To reveal how we are faring in our attempt to reflect the character of God. Now, before we go further, I think it's important to establish the baseline. God's character. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself or a little ahead of Jonathan here, but not too far ahead. Because if you look at Matthew 5.48, same chapter, well, you find the baseline. You find what God's character is all about. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's standard. Perfection. The Sermon on the Mount that you're going through is not simple rules for living. And it's not gospel. It's not good news. It actually falls under the category of law. If I say, I have good news for you. Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. Read it and do it. Well, good luck. Because you're not going to be able to do it. Because even if you think you're doing well, you come to Matthew 5, 48, and you think, perfect. Not give it your best shot. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are sinners by nature. There's something dreadfully wrong with each and every one of us. Something that plagues us from within. And the law, which was given to reveal God's character, that beautiful character, now looks at our own heart or shines a light on our own heart, diagnoses our heart. And in this text, what does it diagnose? It diagnoses anger. And murder. Have you ever been angry with someone? Of course you have. It's not a trick question. I get angry. You get angry. All too often. What have I done to someone when I get angry with him or her? I've murdered them. In my heart. And that's hard to hear. That my anger actually is the equivalent of sticking a knife into someone. How is it murder? And, and what am I actually saying before you? Am I somehow coming clean and admitting that I'm some psycho killer? quest uh, say? Anybody catch that? Thank you. I knew that my 80s rockers would get it, okay? Is that what I'm saying? That, that I'm actually, I've actually stuck a knife into someone or killed them some other way? No, and, and and yes. No, literally, yes, spiritually. Because I've been angry with someone. I'm saying in my anger, what I've done is I've attacked the image of God. And every human being is created in the image of God. And when I get angry at them, what I'm doing is I'm pointing out some deficiency in them. And what I'm doing is I'm saying... You are somehow lacking integrity. You are somehow deficient. God messed up when he created you. You are less of an image bearer than you should be. Now I'm attacking God himself when I say that. That's what anger does. It actually attacks God. I denigrate people's integrity, their intellect, their heart, their reason for existence, and on and on and on. Whoever says to a brother or sister, Raka, what does that mean? How many of you have walked up to somebody and said, Raka, literally? I don't think so. So does that mean you're clean? Well, maybe or not. Let me tell you what Raka meant. Raka, in the words of one author, was A way of going up to someone who professed to be a believer, professed to possess the Spirit of God, and you say, You actually don't possess the Spirit of God. You are unspiritual. You're attacking their spiritual character. They say, No, but I believe. And you say, No, no. Despite what you say, you're not a believer. Anyone who says, you fool, well the Greek word for fool there, it's not necessarily the same way we use it, it it, it kind of is, but it really would, uh, it attacked their piety. So in one breath I'm saying, you're not a spiritual person, you don't have the spirit of God despite what you say. And the reason I know that is because you're a fool, you're not pious enough. Well, How do I measure Piety. By the way, you look and act. Who are the ones Jesus is addressing? The Pharisees. You can only imagine that the Pharisees, on several occasions said raka to Jesus, or called him a fool, and if they didn't have the guts to say it to his face, which they often didn't, then they would go to his disciples and say, raka, you fool. You possess the spirit of God, do you? We are the arbiters of truth, we Pharisees. You, you don't wash your hands before you eat certain foods. You walk around with this guy who hangs out with tax collectors. Raka, fool. And they thought they could get away with it. Because they're just words and they were the arbiters of all things true and orthodox. Certainly it never crossed their mind that they were violating the sixth commandment with these words. Because they weren't actually killing Jesus, at least not yet. But Jesus uses the law to diagnose their hearts. And says, oh, the law goes much deeper than a mere external righteousness. And the law diagnoses my heart and your heart too. We are all heart murderers. I judge people in my heart to be impious, to be fools before God. And we are all tongue murderers. We say things like raka and fool. We rip on people. We live in enmity with one another. At school, at work, in our hearts, when we serve on a board or committee with someone. We all are guilty of this. Someone tries out a new look. could be as simple as that. And we think, what on earth are they going for with that look? Now, we're not going to say, I, I hope we don't say that to them. Some people just have new filters and it comes out. But they've created, they, they, they've done uh, no worse sin, committed no worse sin by saying it than what's already gone on in my heart. We judge people. And words can be so cruel. And words are like toothpaste. Once they come out of the tube, you can't get it back in. At least not the right way. Damage done. There's a song by the Christian band Newsboys called Your Love is Better Than Life. And it starts by saying, I don't know how I can end a prayer and then turn on a friend. I don't know what I was thinking when I just pressed send. I don't know why I still criticize the things I don't know. So my question to you is, what is your attitude towards your brothers and sisters? What is your attitude towards humans in general, people you work with? People who live in the same house as you. People in this church. People that you run into at Market Basket. People who cut you off in traffic. People who slow you down, whatever it is. Am I concerned when I've hurt them or when I'm at odds with them? When I feel I need to be reconciled to someone, do I initiate reconciliation or do I wait for them to come to me because I'm righteous and they're not? Sinning in anger warrants a punishment no less than hell itself. Because when we violate God's perfect standard, God must punish. And the punishment is hell. And when we are heart murderers and tongue murderers, we fall short of his righteousness. So, what do we do in response? Be angry but be angry at your sin. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are told to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Someone once asked me, should a Christian ever hate? And I said, yes, so long as you hate what is evil. It is okay to hate Satan. Well, the Bible says we are to love, and I said it also says we are to hate what is evil. Your sin is evil. And so it's okay to be angry at your sin so long As you are angry enough to be driven to repentance. Because being angry at our sin is a good sign of the very power of heaven moving in you. These two hands coming together are from a statue right outside of Derry, England, or Derry, Ireland. It's a statue of reconciliation. Two humans who were at odds over religious differences and other differences. Now saying we need to come together for our country to survive. And we need to be reconciled to God and to one another. When we are heart murderers, when we are tongue murderers, then we're living at odds with someone, whoever it is we're attacking. And The Bible says no, we are to reach out and be reconciled to them. Therefore, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What Christ is saying is don't pretend to worship God while you are harboring anger in your heart. So what shall we do then? Well, the law not only diagnoses sin, the law is meant to drive us To the arms of the only one who can forgive our sin. And the only one who can meet the demands of the law itself. Namely, Jesus Christ. When you read the law of God properly, not according to the pharisaical interpretations. But when you read it through the lens of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. You are convicted, yes, but it doesn't end there. Because the law then is meant to say, as a sinner... Run to the one that the law points to. And the law points to Jesus Christ. The author of the law calls all of us to repent of our sin and come to him for forgiveness. So, first be reconciled to a brother or sister with whom you're angry and then worship God. That's what God desires. And reconciliation isn't easy. It's not easy to reach out your hand. Because reconciliation involves repentance. And you know what that means. It means saying, I'm sorry. If you can't see the Calvin and Hobbes frames, I'll read it to you. You know, I feel bad that I called Susie names and I hurt her feelings. I'm sorry, I did it. Well, maybe you should apologize to her. I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. Saying I'm sorry is hard. There's a, a book that I use for uh, both premarital counseling and, and marital counseling called When Sinners Say, I Do. And the whole premise of the book is that when you say I do, though you may think that you're marrying your knight in shining armor or the princess of your dreams, you're marrying a wretched sinner like yourself. And sin will continue to manifest itself throughout your marriage. And so the gospel continually needs to be applied to your marriage. And one of the great pieces of advice that it gives, whenever you are at odds with someone, before you blame and commit heart murder and tongue murder, stop and always suspect self first. And always inspect self first. It's just like Jesus saying... Take the log out of your eye before you look at the speck in someone else's eye. It's another way of saying that. Always suspect self first. When I'm at odds with someone, chances are I'm just as much if not more to blame. What did I do to create this firestorm? Let me get to the heart of that, and then we can start to work it out. Now, you may have to confront somebody because maybe they stepped over the line as well. But first, before you do that, look inward. Suspect self, inspect self. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, Jesus says. Do it ASAP. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. You may need a cooling off period when you are at odds with someone. But settle your differences as soon as you can. Especially, especially at home with your spouse, and your children. And this is a word particularly to men, though it certainly applies to women as well, but men do tend to be hot-headed more than women. That may be an oversimplification. Maybe you're a very angry woman and you say, oh, you haven't met me yet. But speaking for men, we tend to get very hot-headed. So watch your tongue, watch your anger, Dana. You... And there's something else I feel I need to address. Now, I I promise you, I'm not thinking of anyone in this room. I'm not specifically accusing anybody, but I'm looking at stats in the church. There's my lead-in, okay? I'd be remiss if I failed to mention the high rate of domestic violence in the Christian church. And that's shocking for some people to think that there's a high rate of domestic violence. It mirrors the rate of society at large. And that is shameful. I personally have ministered to a few wives over the past 20 years who have been abused by their husbands, whether verbally or physically. But I quote a gentleman named Detective Sergeant Don Stewart. He's a retired police officer who handled domestic violence cases for 25 years. He's a Christian And he says one out of every four Christian couples, a quarter of all Christian couples, experience at least one episode of physical abuse within the marriage. Battering is the single largest cause of injury to women, more than auto accidents, muggings, and sexual assaults combined. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists reports that three to four million women are beaten in their homes every year. Year. It's staggering, isn't it? According to the U.S. Department of Justice, approximately 2,000 women are murdered every year by an intimate partner. And sadly, in the church, it happens. We are guilty of some of the most heinous crimes in our heart and with our words murderous words. And so as you read the law, let it do its diagnostic work, and it will more than bug you. It will hurt. Reading the law will hurt. But then, don't stop there with the hurt. Let the law so convict you that you cry out and say, I need forgiveness for this. Yes! Now flee at that point. Flee to the arms of the Savior. Because he came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law, to meet the demands of the law for you, to obey the law for you. He's the one who never murdered in his heart, with his mouth, and certainly with his actions. He is the one who never committed adultery. He is the one who never stole. He is the, the one who never blasphemed his God. He perfectly loved the Lord his God with all his soul and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. Whereas you and I fall short of that every moment of every day. But the good news is he doesn't. And when he was fulfilling the law, he was doing it for you. And that's where the gospel comes in. Because God then measures you against the law... And if your faith is in Christ, you are now clothed with Christ. And guess who now meets God's demands? You. Because Christ met the demands for you. That's what the gospel is. And so as you're convicted, flee to God. Because Christ went to that awful place called the cross, where he was murdered in violation of the sixth commandment, because he was innocent. And yet that cross is a wonderful place because he went there to be murdered, to die willingly for you and for me. And now he calls us to repent of that heart condition that still plagues us. And so come to him for salvation if you are not a believer and you know that in your heart. Or come to him for cleansing and restoration if you are a believer. Because you never outgrow your need for the gospel. And if we do not repent. Then the words remain true. That violators of the sixth commandment. And any of the commandments. But in our text the sixth. In heart. In word. And in deeds. Are liable to the hell of fire. And will be thrown into prison Jesus says. Which is a metaphor in context for hell. And they will never get out until they've paid the last penny. Verse 26. And that's another way of saying that they will never, ever, ever get out. In fact, the Greek is quite strong there. They will never, ever get out. Because there's no way that we could pay any of the debt, let alone down to the last penny. And so be angry at your sin. Angry enough that it drives you to repentance. Sinning in anger warrants a punishment no less than hell itself. But being angry at your sin is a good sign of the very power of heaven moving in you. There was an article on the website, The Science of Us, that listed what they called 17 things we know about forgiveness. And perhaps the most interesting scientific study on forgiveness noted who or what does not forgive The article summarized their research this way. Cats never forgive. (laughs) They said scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. Now the bulk of the research centered on primates like mountain gorillas and chimps and whatnot. And they would often follow confrontations with friendly, even cuddling behavior. Maybe embracing, maybe even kissing Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas. They even seem to make up. The only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. (laughs) Even wild cats make up. But that cat in your home probably looks like that more often than not. Or that behind me. So in other words, when it comes to forgiving... Don't be like a domestic cat. So what do we do with this? A couple suggestions for you. Make a list, if that helps, if that helps, of those with whom you are angry or are at odds with, and make a plan quite simply to be reconciled to them. As you approach them with your overtures, you can't control how they will respond. They may choose to still remain at odds with you. You can't control that. You're not responsible for that. But you can control how you'll respond. Number two, be honest with yourself and jot down those things that push your buttons. Those things that really make you mad. Those personality types. Consider it a preemptive strike, if you will. Preemptive action. Take these things to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you know that this type of person just continually gets under my skin. And I don't want that to continue to happen. Show me where I'm at fault. Always suspect and inspect self. And show me how to love them. I may not like somebody, you said. Naturally like somebody. But I am called to love them. And in loving them, I may just learn how to like them as well. When you're the offended party, talk it through. Forgive 70 times 7. That means always. Don't throw the sin back in the person's face years later. This happens with couples a lot. Yeah, remember that time that you... I'm sorry, I thought you said you forgave me for that. Apparently you didn't. You can't. Once you say, I forgive you, you can't throw it back in their face. Forgive and move on with a constant spirit of forgiveness. Because sinning in anger warrants a punishment no less than hell itself. But being angry at your sin is a good sign of the very, very power of heaven moving in you. Let's pray. Father, I am convicted as I read the Sermon on the Mount, and as I come to this particular passage, I want to, if I'm honest, just zoom, zoom right by it. Oh, I read it. Yeah, I took it to heart. But when we do take it to heart, it hurts. It hurts to think of how we've hurt other people and how we, in the end, have attacked you Because we've attacked the image of God. Lord, we confess our sins again. We confess that we are heart murderers. We confess that we are tongue murderers. We see it on TV, the damage that it does. We see it in our classrooms. And where it hurts the most, we see it at home. Where we need to forgive, Lord, give us a spirit of forgiveness. Where we need to ask for forgiveness, give us humility. And Father... May we run to our Savior once again and hear him say, you are forgiven. I have met the demands of the law for you. And may we be filled with your spirit to live according to what is taught here. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the gifts that we are uh, about to receive as we take the offering. And may all of the monies given and all of the talents given be used for your glory and for the spread of your gospel and your kingdom from here in Westford to Groton and Littleton and Acton and Chelmsford, Tingsboro, Nashua, all the way to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.